In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about finding clarity in the pauses, the moments between decisions. A cancer diagnosis arrives with a lot of to-dos. It becomes a full-time job to manage. The calendar is immediately stacked with diagnostics, the scans, the appointments to interpret the scans, then the calls to insurance, the calls and emails to inform friends and family. It goes on and on. The logistics of managing a cancer diagnosis can quickly suck all the oxygen out of the room. I saved my paper wall calendar from the year I was diagnosed January and February were pretty blank, except for an appointment with my gynecologist in mid-February. I found the lump the week before, but not realizing how life-changing that 10-second moment would be, I didn't note it on the calendar. After that gynecology appointment, there were three weeks of waiting, represented by blank space on the calendar. My 35th birthday arrived on March 5th, and with a smiley face and a squiggly line drawn to show that we were celebrating with a little family trip to Lake Tahoe. And then on March 12th, the mammogram and ultrasound were scheduled. The next day was the biopsy. And from there, a whirlwind of appointments like a blizzard of blue and black ink cloud the rest of March. By the end of the month, the word chemo was inked in every week, and I learned to mark my expected good days and the days I knew I would feel rough. Then six months later, surgery. Then a few months after that, 35 rounds of daily radiation. Then more Herceptin appointments. That calendar is clogged with writing. Some of these appointments required late nights of research and discussions and decisions by me, more represented decisions made for me by other people, and me, later, trying to make sense of it all. Between the squares on the calendar and the little vertical lines that mark the transition from one day to the next, right there was me and my middle-of-the-night thoughts and anxieties. The ones the Ativan and the precious golden pint of THC honey a friend gifted me with the instructions to take a spoonful at bedtime, those things couldn't touch the insomnia caused by the echoes of all those decisions. Cancer happens so fast that we have to make decisions at breakneck speed too, but later in the in-between, time stretches out and we think about them. My guest today knows about this too. Her name is Erin Stadola. Erin was diagnosed at 29 with stage 1 triple negative breast cancer. Erin's here to read a piece she wrote called The Moments Between. It came from our 2020 identity and aftermath issue, and she joins me today from British Columbia. Welcome to The Burn, Erin. Thanks for having me, April. Thank you. So, all right, let's have you read, and then we will chat a bit. So, again, your story is called The Moments Between. I'll let you take it away. Thanks. 
sometimes identity is formed in a singular moment. Anyone diagnosed with something like cancer can attest to this. Most of the time, though, identity is formed in the string of moments between and after a crucial juncture when we reflect, stretch, question, and honor. If we remember to pay attention to the moments between, it can be a remarkably fruitful place for learning. This is what the moments between have taught me. I had never considered breasts as part of my identity before breast cancer. They were, at best, a slight annoyance. At worst, a drain on financial resources, a target for unwanted attention and objectification, and although I didn't know it then, a ticking time bomb. I thought about them as little as possible until breast cancer happened, and then they became all I thought about. My breasts, in their natural, reconstructed, and absent forms, ironically became a thread by which I crafted an identity of strength. After a breast cancer diagnosis at 29 years old and learning that I carried the BRCA1 mutation, my plan of treatment was to undergo six months of chemotherapy and a complete mastectomy. While I knew that options for how surgery might look existed, I was presented with a single one, nipple-sparing bilateral mastectomy with immediate reconstruction. The aesthetic part was my sliver of autonomy. A symptom of living with a female body under patriarchy is that we are conditioned to be dissatisfied with our female bodies at all times. At all times. I certainly did fit this description and did not trust myself to make a clear-headed decision about surgically altering my body without professional guidance. I began to unpack years of shame and perfectionism with a therapist, and as a result, felt a fundamental shift in my relationship to my body as I learned to quiet the internal and external rhetoric of how my body should look. So I asked the plastic surgeon to use implants the same size as my natural breasts. Between natural breasts and breast implants, I learned to honor my body. No one wants to tell a young woman faced with surgical removal of both her breasts that replacing them with implants will feel nothing like the real thing. I was lukewarm from the onset of my relationship with the reconstructed breasts. Clothed, they appeared very natural. They allowed me to move through the world with one less cancer-induced physical change, and I felt conflicted about not feeling grateful. I hated that the skin over my implants felt cold in the winter, that I couldn't lie on my stomach, that there was a hollow space between me and the recipient of an embrace. The implants were awkward and uncomfortable and, well, fake. They didn't align with the new peace I felt towards my body. I began to wonder who these breast implants were for, as they certainly were not serving the one living with them. A complicated and painful surgery in order to mimic breasts that could not feel or feed children seemed absurd. So who then was I doing this for? Did I need to be doing it all if it wasn't making me happy? The obvious answers are everyone else and no. In hindsight, it's obvious. But it took introspection and persistence and learning and unlearning to get to this obvious answer for myself. I stripped away, piece by piece, the expectations that society puts on female bodies. 
these bodies that are meant to be neatly presented in a slim, hairless, young, white, breasted, buttocked, undimpled, perfectly unmessy package that those of us living in female bodies must go to every length to attain and maintain. These are the rules we are all given. In light of these culturally ingrained rules, it was disappointing but not surprising that when I looked to surgically go against these rules and have my breast implants removed, that I was met with resistance. There are many who benefit from these rules being upheld. It is not people living in female bodies, surely. But I knew that on my own trajectory of setting these rules aside and truly seeking what was right for me, I heard that obvious answer loud and clear. The implants had to go. So with a clarity that came from within, insisting that I knew what I wanted became easier. Surgeons not immune to ideas about female bodies resisted and tried to dissuade me. People in my life steeped in the same rules we all are couldn't see beyond to a place where the rules don't need to be followed if they don't make sense. But in the face of all this, I listened to my voice. It was steadfast and strong. Between breast implants and no breasts, I learned to honor myself. It wasn't the moment I woke up with a new chest or no chest that I found my identity. It was the moments between. The between is a place of seeking. It's a murky place where steps are heavy. It's a messy place. The moments between wading through this mess is also the place where effort becomes strength and clarity. It becomes a place where the reason for struggle is clear as day. It's light guiding the path forward. Mm, that was so powerful, Erin. Thank you so much. So let's take a little break here. We'll let you catch your breath. And when we come back, we'll chat some more about your story. Hi, my name is Tamara Zalayev. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer at age 33 in 2018. I had seen so many posts from wildfire all over social media, and it was a little bit after my diagnosis that I signed up for my first live pop-up event, and I had such a good time. I made the jump this year, registered for a six-week prompt workshop with April, and I do not regret it. It was the best thing to do for the beginning of the year. I look forward to it every single week. I love that I set that time aside for myself to do a little self-care and write. I blogged all through treatment, and the prompts that April gives are so simple, yet stir up some of the deepest memories not just from cancer, but also just life in general. It's such a safe space to share the good, the bad, the ugly. April, thank you so much. I encourage everyone to sign up for one of these workshops. Author Kim Harms has been watching her husband construct buildings for two decades, but she never imagined there would be a day when a piece of her would have to be physically reconstructed. That after a breast cancer diagnosis at age 40, her chest would literally be taken apart and put back together. It was during the physical process of breast reconstruction that she realized just how much breast cancer affects the non-physical parts of life. Pieces of her marriage, her thought life, her self-esteem and sense of womanhood were all taken apart 
and reconstructed alongside her body. She chose to use her expertise as a journalist and freelance writer to pen Life Reconstructed, a resource for other women going through the same thing. Combining her experience, input from other survivors and medical professionals, as well as extensive research, Kim weighs the pros and cons of various surgical options and details the physical, psychological, emotional, and relational costs that accompany a breast cancer diagnosis. Written with transparency, compassion, and a bit of humor, Life Reconstructed can be found in bookstores across the U.S. and anywhere you buy books online. Learn more at kimharms.net or find Kim on Instagram at kimharmslifereconstructed. All right. Welcome back. Thank you so much for that testimonial, Tam. And do check out our episode sponsor, the writer Kim Harms and her book Life Reconstructed. At Wildfire, we are strong advocates for storytelling, for survivorship, and for resources created by and for us. Erin, back to you. Thank you again for your powerful writing. Really appreciated hearing you read that story. Oh, you're very welcome. So I want to bring us back to a moment in your piece, and it was that moment of realization where you asked who these implants were for and who the shape this body is for. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your process of realization and not to plant necessarily a seed for you, but maybe to plant a small seed. But I'm thinking, and I was thinking as you were reading it again this time, was Writing is a way of kind of owning how we are seen, and it's a little bit unlike other ways of of how we go about in the world. And particularly after a breast cancer diagnosis, a lot of um, a lot of how we see, are seen isn't up to us. But writing our stories lets us to be seen in a certain way. So I think I've just convoluted my question for you, but it's both. You know, <laughs> if you could take us back to that moment, and then maybe if writing was part of of claiming how you want to be seen. Yeah. Well, um, I'll speak to the first part of that question. When I started to, you know, think about, uh, think about my body and these implants that were on my body, um, I got the sense that they really, they weren't part of me. Um, and I sort of, I, you know, let that sink in. And the fact that I, didn't feel comfortable in them. I didn't like them. I started to think, well, I mean, I wasn't really, um, I wasn't asked to participate in that decision. Um, so clearly, you know, someone else was making this decision for me and, um, it didn't align with how I felt. I wasn't part of it. Um, so that really drove home to me the fact that, uh, I am not actually doing this for myself and I would like to do something different. At that point, I was doing a lot of journaling. So writing about this was important for me. Um, and it was a way to bring myself into the aftermath of, of the decision. Um, because at that point, when I had my implants, um, I, I didn't feel like I had autonomy over that decision. So writing about it kind of um, solidified how I felt about it and yeah, gave me back some autonomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense to me. And you're reminding me of a period in my life when I wore a breast prosthetic, um, you know, a prosthetic breast form. And I did that for about five years. And I had this really strange feeling of being out in the world as passing as a two-breasted person and then coming home and feeling less comfortable in my home environment when I would take that breast form off. I like almost felt like I had this reverse thing happening where I, it was like I was believing the story. Like if everyone else is more comfortable with me having two breasts, then that's what I, what I will present out in the world. But I'm certainly not going to sleep in this breast form. But then it made me uncomfortable with how I looked asymmetric. It's I love your question. It's just a really important one about, you know, who, who needs to live in this body and who needs to feel most comfortable. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love in your piece, how you talk about breasts and identity and beauty standards. And at the time that you wrote this, you had just completed a master's of museum studies. And it was a program you said in your bio in the magazine where you focused on feminism and anti-colonial curation and you can tell me if if this question is way out of left field, but I'm just curious, you know, as you've traveled the distance, um, this different in between, as it were, from your diagnosis to where you are now, how that is aligned with how you are working and kind of viewing the world and viewing um, art and different things from this kind of lens of, of breast cancer now. Yeah, I think that's a really good question and um, something that I hadn't really thought about. But as you were asking it, I thought, yeah, I do bring this into my work. I can't help but bring this perspective that I learned through having breast cancer and now living as a flat person. I can't help but bring that into my work. And I guess in my work, that just means um, more questioning. Uh, you know, I went through this intense period of questioning what people expected of me and expected of me, especially as a woman. And so I think in my, in my work, uh, at the museum, that just has translated into uh, more questioning of, um, you know, the role of a museum, the role of a curator, the role of, what it means to hold a collection, what's in the collection, what isn't in the collection, a lot of critical, uh, critical thinking and wanting to encourage people as well to do that critical thinking. Um, a lot of my role at the museum is to, um, is to educate. So that's, you know, I definitely try to, uh, to get that across in my work. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And, it's, it's just making me think how important representation is. You know, I remember the first time that I saw, for me, you know, a, a half flat depiction in art and it took my breath away and I didn't realize how much I needed to see that. It just was one more little notch, I guess, in me feeling whole. And I wonder, is it, is it the same for you? Have you, have you seen art with, with flat women in it? There certainly isn't enough. Um, I would, I would love to see more. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you're talking about representation, I think about, yeah, representation of flat women, um, 
how I really had to go seek that out if I wanted to see it. It's not something you just stumble across. Um, not a, yeah, typical, uh, image of what a woman looks like. Um, and it also makes me think about, um, representation of all kinds, you know, I mean, in our institutions, uh, you know, it's a pretty, um, narrow view of what we're exposed to. And I think just in, in all, uh, in all aspects of, um, you know, academia and education and popular culture, um, yeah, representation is so important. It's so helpful. Oh my goodness. It really is. And it's reminding me, um, I know we're speaking more broadly than this, but it's reminding me of a quote from Audre Lorde where she talks about how important it is that women who've had mastectomies become visible to one another. And I think about that again in terms of our storytelling as well. You know, even if we're not at the grocery store and easily able to identify each other, at least when we write, we write with honesty and vulnerability and let our experiences kind of shine a light to help someone else who might be feeling lost or in that, you know, that conveyor belt of decision making and decisions being made for that happens in breast cancer. And, you know, I think if anyone listening at least hears from us that they might have other options, then, then that's, that's the point. That's the work, you know? Um, yeah, I don't think I have a question in there. I'm just wholeheartedly agreeing with everything that you said. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, just, you know, like you've said, and I've said, and many other women have said, it's just such a, um, a sigh of relief when you know that you're, um, being reflected in something and someone has, you know, walked a similar path to you. And I mean, that's part of the reason why I, um, don't wear a prosthetic. You know, I don't know that you could necessarily tell all the time that I am flat. Um, but you know, if someone is going through anything similar to what I was going through and, um, sees a woman who's flat in this, in the street, um, I'm so happy to be, um, to be that, you know, light of recognition. I also didn't, uh, wear a wig or a scarf or anything when I was going through chemo and I was bald. Um, and that was just another sign of, if I can help anyone out there by not even speaking to them and just being myself in the world, um, then that makes me really happy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's these little layers that help someone else feel less shame, you know, about what they're going through. And I think these real life representations are so important because, um, not just on the, the big, uh, the big stage of art as we've been talking about, but even in the little, the little screen of art, you know, the Instagram filters and the different things where this idea of perfection is getting really, really narrow and chiseled way down that if we can show that there's beauty in all of the different options and that ultimately you're the one who has to live in that body, then, um, then at the end of the day, the decision is is yours and yours alone. And I love stories like yours that involve 
having had a decision made, you know, in the throes of treatment and then having opted to make a different one, because I think people need to also hear that that's possible, much like having a second opinion, like you don't have to be locked into the decision, even though it feels so critical and so life and death in the beginning. And a lot of cancer is, but the thing about us being diagnosed so much younger is we have to live with these um, results hopefully, right. I I feel like I should knock on wood too, but you know, hopefully we're living a really long time and we've never had that before in history. People haven't seen what it's like to have implants have to be replaced every 10 years for, for a lifetime. So yeah, again, I just went off on a tangent and don't have a question wrapped up in there, but it's just like, we need to keep sharing these stories so people know where their options are. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, April. I mean, you can um, in my story, I went from having, you know, been rushed into the decision of, uh, having reconstruction with implants. I, you know, don't want to in- encourage anyone to have more surgeries than, than they need to have. But, you know, um, there's, you can also go the other way, you know, um, have a flat closure at first and then decide that that's not for you. And, um, and go for something else, you know, like you're saying, getting a second opinion on, whatever you think you need to get a second opinion on. Um, yeah, uh, there aren't, you know, that many decisions, um, that you can't go back on. Right. Absolutely. And I think that one thing that's a little different maybe about today's cancer culture is that we, we don't have the doctors on quite as high a pedestal perhaps as maybe some of our parents or our grandparents, which isn't to say we don't you know, love and respect them, but it does make it possible to insert a few moments of questions and contemplation and those moments in between that you so eloquently wrote about where it's okay to hold your autonomy and, and just be part of the process. Yeah, it is, you know, um, it's sometimes can be hard to hold the expertise of, of doctors, you know, like I, I didn't think, during my cancer treatment, during my chemo or anything like that, I didn't think for uh, a second of asking for a second opinion. I don't know anything about uh, chemo, but I, I, I truly am the expert on my body and how I would like to live in it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's such a great place to end. I think um, just this idea that you are building your own owner's manual and unfortunately we have to build them as we live them. Um, but yeah, you're the owner of that body. Well, thank you so much, Erin. I really appreciate our conversation today. Yeah. Thank you, April. This was so nice talking to you. Absolutely. So for those of you listening, today's writer and guest was Erin Stadola. Her piece was called The Moments Between from the August-September 2020 issue of Wildfire called Identity and Aftermath. Erin, if people want to learn more about you, can they find you online? They can find me uh, on Instagram where I'm not terribly active, uh, but it is uh, Erin Stadola on Instagram. So, Perfect. We'll link to you in our show notes. Thank you again. 
Well, I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 35 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a Wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story, and find others on the same path. Don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, leave us a starred review to help others find their way to writing the stories that need to be told. Here is your writing prompt. I want you to think about starting to write your story using your own words. So much of our stories come from our doctors, from our caregivers. They are stories that are being told to us about our bodies, about our cancer experiences, and about our lives. I want you to flip that script and begin to make a glossary of your own experience. This is simple. All you have to do is write down the side of your page A through Z, and then go back and begin to write A is for and fill in the blank. B is for and fill in the blank. And this will be a glossary of your own unique cancer experience and help you start to own it and write it in a way that's meaningful to you. That is your language. All right, set your timer for 10 minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.